what we've been doing, this is part three of facets of the cross. And what the metaphor that we used in approaching the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth is that of a jeweler. Jewelers tend to take a diamond, and when they examine a diamond, what they do is they put on a microscope. You ever see them put on their little smaller microscope or whatever, and they zoom in and they study the various facets of the diamond or the cut that granted its overall brilliance or radiance. And what we're somewhat doing with the cross is analogous. And we're going to, if you will, put on our jeweler's microscopes and we're zooming in and we're studying various ways uh, that the crucifixion has been portrayed in and, and throughout the New Testament. One, like we said, we know the drum that is beat, and rightly so, is that Jesus' death is a sacrifice for our sins. Ha, ha. That's what I happen to be doing today. And that's fine. That is the drum that we beat on a weekly basis. However, in the New Testament, that is not the only uh, facet portrayed of the crucifixion. There are many facets of the crucifixion. And no, we will never exhaust all of them. Uh, week number one, we did the crucifixion as martyr and pattern of life. Last week, uh, what did we do last week? <laughs> Help me out here. You guys are supposed to remember this stuff. Uh, last week, it's slipping. Uh, uh, yeah, that's right. Thank you. Uh, the cross as the uh, compassion high priest. Thank you very much. Um, this week, will we actually be zoning in on the crucifixion as a sacrifice? However, there are many sacrifices throughout the Old Testament. We'll be studying primarily and specifically sacrifice as it pertains to the Day of Atonement, one of Israel's great holy days, if not the greatest holy day throughout the year. So if you can, let's just start off with our introduction. As Jesus painfully suffered on the cross, statements like, he saved others, let him save himself, if this is God's anointed, his chosen one, abounded from the onlooking crowd. No one, not even Jesus' closest followers, assumed that Jesus' crucifixion was his great victory as would-be Messiah of Israel. On the contrary, it was bedrock proof that he wasn't, as the lampooning by Jesus' adversaries above clearly demonstrates. In other words, when they're watching Jesus suffer the crucifixion, uh, the three-hour crucifixion that's going on, Jesus' adversaries and his primary, uh, his biggest critics are standing at the foot of the cross, and they don't perceive this as his great victory. They don't perceive this that his mission is coming to fruition. They actually think the precise opposite. This is Jesus' loss. This is the end or the extinguishing of Jesus' ministry. And in the ancient world, we know the ancient world had a honor-shame culture, and the, their value system was honor and shame. So if they crucified you, that was the epitome that was the absolute height of being shamed. And it was a way of shaming someone, ultimately. It was, the, if you will, the height of dehumanization and a way of shaming the movement. So for everyone watching that day, including Jesus' closest followers who were there and uh, the women who were standing afar off, viewed the movement that Jesus had done the previous three years or so as now shamed and uh, consigned to the dustbin of messianic pretenders. So remember, if you got crucified, normally that meant you were a failed Messiah. Very important to remember that. That's why every time Jesus brought up the crucifixion throughout the narratives of the Gospels, the disciples get all antsy and start to rebuke Jesus and try to get him to do it another way because the crucifixion cannot be part of the messianic task. The cherished hopes of Israel's great day of liberation were now dashed to the ground forever. What's worse is that Jesus' disciples, hold on, you're supposed to be looking at something here. 
So remember, crucifixion means Jesus is not the Messiah. Very important. No one thought that crucifixion was a part of Israel's great hopes in the end of days. Israel had all these hopes, one of them chiefly to be freed from the Romans. But if the Messiah dies at the hands of the Romans, this is a good sign that he failed. So as we say, when Jesus is crucified and then taken off of the cross, this is, uh, this is pure proof that he is not the Messiah. What's worse is that Jesus' disciples had publicly backed the wrong horse, making them primary targets for sharing the same fate as their former master. They were, in effect, Jerusalem's most wanted. John's gospel records the doors were shut for fear of the Judeans when entirely out of the blue, Jesus came and stood next to them. Jesus is the Messiah, okay? It is this unforeseen event more than any other that gave rise to what we now call the Christian faith. To put it in a negative way, no resurrection from the dead, no Christianity. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus has not risen from the dead, your faith is futile. So the Christian faith hinges on Jesus, as we said, raising bodily from the dead. And do you guys recall what the Greek word, not David or Nathan, do you guys recall what the Greek word for resurrection was? Anastasis. And the word is very specific. Resurrection is not a ghost. It's not a phantom. Anastasis is not a way of saying, hey, we follow Jesus and now that he's dead, we have these really warm feelings about his presence and we just have a great feeling about him being here even though he's not. Resurrection is actually going through death and out the other side, what we call life after life after death. In other words, Jesus' body is no longer in the tomb. It's the same body that was crucified roughly 72 hours, and then three days later reappears, of course, bearing some what we call stigmata or scars, as you see here. And that's the point. Jesus is not a ghost. He begs them, and this is uh, key to understanding what's being claimed here with the Christian faith, is that the crucifixion leads to Jesus' resurrection, a bodily resurrection. This means that God had overturned what happened three days earlier. In other words, uh, the priestly elite... Caiaphas, Pilate, the world's no to Jesus is God's ultimate yes to Jesus. Because if Rome didn't like what you had to say, they would put you to bodily death. But God overturns Rome's no and puts him to bodily life. So resurrection is a very specific word. As we, uh, we've said before, resurrection is God's affirmation of creation. Jesus is the prototype for what God will do with the rest of creation. As to Jesus, so to the world. So resurrection is a key, if you will, really the foundation for why they began in the first place to go back and relook at the cross or revision what had happened three days earlier. If Jesus had not stood before them bodily to where they could touch and they did not absolutely confirm that Jesus' body was not in the tomb, remember the two are necessary for the claim of resurrection. Empty tomb and bodily reappearance are the if you will, the two major issues that are needed or criteria that are needed to sustain a claim of anastasis or resurrection. So they believe that Jesus is vindicated. Jesus is resurrected bodily from the grave. Since they had assumed that he was Messiah, this means that his claims, everything that they had perceived is in fact true. Jesus is Israel's long prophesied Messiah. 
our problem is that we have grown up with the Easter stories of Jesus' resurrection, and so it fails to have its full impact on us. But for the ancient world, such an astounding claim that a crucified Jew nonetheless had been resurrected was utter nonsense. Remember, for them, the center of the world, uh, I can only make it analogous that people in Afghanistan are claiming one of the little, I mean, we're talking about a sect with no less than 100 followers and a little sect that starts to herald uh, their leader who died under Roman or Imperial USA missiles has resurrected and he's now king of the earth. To us, that is an astonishing, ridiculous claim. After all, we killed him, we put him to death, and now you're claiming that the Afghanistan leader is now at the helm of the universe as king? It's quite ridiculous, right? No less for those in the Roman Empire. Remember, this is Judea is just a backwoods little eastern province. It's, it's nothing. It really only served as a buffer between Rome and Rome's enemies. So they just kind of used them as a shield, so to speak. So I just want you to, I'm going to try to just momentarily tease out how ridiculous the claims of a resurrected Messiah, uh, particularly a Jew, really are. And we'll see that momentarily. And so I ask you, because I'm going to make some statements. They may border on crude, but it's historical and it's to tease out a certain point. So please just grace me. Here's a great example. How many of you are familiar with this first century inscription? We're really, most scholars date it from first to third century inscription. Alex Amenos is the uh, inscription, or the graffitio is what they call it. So really it says, Alex Amenos worships his God. And this is on a house, and Alex Amenos is probably a slave who lives in the house. Can you guys see the, cru- the cross at the top? See, here's Alex Amenos here, worshiping his God. And then you have a crucified man. But you see what's on the head there? It's the head of an ass or a jackass or a donkey or whatnot. So just stay with me. Tune in. You could watch that and listen to me narrate. The crude etching meant as, it's not on your notes, by the way. The crude etching meant as a joke is of a man with the head of an ass hanging on a cross. Next to the cross, a small boy kneels in adoration. An inscription reads, Alex Amenos worships his God. A similar graffito in an adjoining room identifies the boy, Alex Amenos, perhaps a slave, as a Christian. Today, the image is almost universally repelling. Then, difficult as it is to imagine, it was probably thought a pretty good joke. Elvis on a crucifix that just about captures what Jesus is risen might have sounded like to most respectable people of the ancient world. And that's Stephen J. Patterson, by the way. That's not my writing. I wish it was. The Apostle Paul says this much when conveying his own experiences with the heralding of Messiah crucified. In the letter of 1 Corinthians, when all the people at Corinth are competing for positions of power and honor, he reminds them of the message that he established that church in the first place, Christ crucified or Messiah crucified. This isn't just about, if you will, saying, hey, you guys are focused on all this other stuff. Let's just keep it with those two terms. To say someone was crucified, as I have stated before, is to say something shameful, marginal, and weak. In other words, you guys are competing for honor, but the very founder of our mission, of our church, the very founder of our faith system, was murdered as shamefully weak. 
So why are you guys competing? We're not, if you will, doing what the founder has done. He writes, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The only valid conclusion as to why, and this is crucial, um, if you will, this is faith-seeking understanding. A lot of us, uh, just in the spirit moves and renews hearts and minds, it just does that when this message is preached, when Christ is preached, the gospel is preached. Um, eventually, sometimes we start to ask ourselves, if you will, more reasonable questions. And this is, if you will, faith-seeking understanding. I had no problem accepting several years ago that Jesus rose from the dead just from the preaching of the message. But now I have to ask myself, well, why would they, these Jews claim this stuff? And so, if you will, we're doing faith-seeking understanding. And if this helps establish your faith, that is fine as well. The only valid conclusion as to why a group of peasant Jews would launch an unarmed, outmatched takeover of the Roman Empire on behalf of Jesus is because they were absolutely convinced their once-crucified leader had now been resurrected. Crudely but respectfully, now was the time for the world to pledge allegiance to Alam. Alex Samenos's ass. Such a jarring statement catches, well, the offense of the cross. And of course, I did that specifically to help you understand what was being asked of people in the ancient world whenever Paul went around and heralded a crucified Jew as the Messiah and that they better pledge allegiance to him over and against Caesar or any other cult or any other deity. Very crazy statement indeed. Crucifixion through resurrection lenses. After having seen an empty tomb and handling Jesus' resurrected body, the disciples began to review the crucifixion. What had been upon first glance, Jesus' humiliating failure began to take on new, unheard of significance. Remember, there were thousands upon thousands of people crucified in the ancient world. No one ever thought to herald any of these people, including those crucified with Jesus the day he was crucified, one in the right hand, one in the left hand, as the Messiah. So this is an unheard of statement. The only th reason that I'm going to continue to pound this hammer into the door is to say the only reason they would have made such a ridiculous statement that a crucified Jew had been uh, was the Messiah is because they were absolutely convinced that Jesus had appeared to them in bodily form, resurrected. The only one who can resurrect, if you will, according to the Jewish mind, the only one who could take someone and kill it and then raise it to new life was Yahweh the Creator. So this was proof positive that Yahweh had acted in history to overturn the verdict of the priests and Rome and to say, yes, this is my king after all. So that's the only reason they began to look at what happened several days earlier. In Luke 24, I believe, the, when Jesus encounters people on the way, is what it says in the Greek, on Emmaus, they recount the story of Jesus' crucifixion. They said, we had hoped he would liberate Israel. All their hopes had been dashed to the ground. So the only reason that this uh, once failure becomes a victory is because Jesus had been vindicated. So it causes them to take a second look at the cross. What exactly did happen there? What was going on? What did Jesus say when he meant he was going to give himself a sacrifice or on behalf of many? And it causes them to take a second look at this event, and it began to take on new significance. Otherwise, we can, as Stephen Patterson points out, and this is key because we're going to focus on sacrifice today. And there is, if you will, we can talk about Jesus dying for our sins or Jesus as a sacrifice, and we can narrow that down to this. And I think Stephen Patterson makes a good point. 
reduce Jesus' death to a carte blanche. That's a card to do whatever you want to do, by the way. A carte blanche by, way, by which one might stroll carefree through a world of injustice that demands a word of protest from our muted lips. Preemptorily, silenced by an insipid persuasion that our debt has been paid. This is credit card theology, where daddy always pays the bills. Point well taken. Now, it's not that that's true, but what I'm going to show you is that in the ancient world where temples and sacrifices abounded and was a part of a way of identifying your place in society, when you accepted Jesus as your sacrifice and you began to withdraw from the temple, this carried huge implications upon you. In other words, potential crucifixion. So today we tend to view Jesus, again, it's not less than that. Jesus is a sacrifice for our sins. It's not less than that. But in the ancient world, making such a claim would have carried huge social implications. In other words, uh, you're, you're basically turning your nose up to the rest of the world because they had their sacrifices. And if you didn't want to participate with them, then that could cause social ostracization, as Nathan says. <laughs> have to work your way through that word. Now, this is uh, the market at Rome. And as you can see, there's a procession here, and there's all kinds of sacrifices going on. Here's an altar here. Uh, here's a procession here. Sacrifices in the ancient world. What we need to realize in the ancient world, like we said, there wasn't a concept of separation of church and state in the ancient world. This is only since the 18th century enlightenment and beyond. That's what we created in recent times. In the ancient world, a temple served both as a bank, a place to worship the emperor, and a place to worship the deities that had placed them as the emperor. And it was a place for you to get your meat. So it was the bank, the market, the church, and the government building at the same time, state building. So it was all these things combined. So remember, in the ancient world, there is no separation of church and state, sacred, secular, none of that at play in the ancient world. So that's uh, somewhat how every market looked at some level. Unlike most city squares in our day, Ancient marketplaces were saturated with temples that were publicly sacrificing to their gods. Banquets, festivals, and public processions were a mark of public space in the ancient world. The priest was both the butcher and the cook, and the banker, so to speak. Sacrificing the victim and then distributing it to onlookers. For those in... Okay, I need you to turn up your, uh, your minds right now. <laughs> okay, this is going to be the most difficult part of the sermon... Just so you know, I need all of your intellectual capacities running at full orb. So, and then I'll bring it down from there. And remember, I usually teach about four times the amount of information than the average sermon. So if you only walk away with one-fourth of what I got, you got what you got in a normal sermon, so you're okay. <laughs> not a big deal. I'm not saying you have to get everything. I'm trying to give a little bit for everybody. So this is for the, the scholars in the room. What is important to note at this point is that the order of distribution and the amount of food was according to one's social status. This means, on the one hand, the wealthy and the elite ate first and got the best portions. On the other hand, women and slaves were ser and freemen were served last and generally doled out the tiniest of portions. As one scholar noted here, as in all times and places, you are what you eat. In other words, you knew full well your place in Roman society 
That is, far beneath the emperor and his legions. Okay, so for, for example, let's say Andy Medina's, and I'm going to give you another example, but let's say Andy Medina's a governor. Will is a, some sort of Roman senator. David is a soldier. I'm a slave. And let's say Brandon's a freeman. And if we were standing outside of this, this sacrificial system here, they wouldn't just start handing out the food just ad hoc or to whoever, whoever came first, like we do with the communion. We all come up and get an equal share. For them, they would have given the hierarchy, those of higher status, food first and more food. And then it would have went down from there. So Will, it probably would have went, if you will, Will, Andy, David would have been served, and then finally Brandon, and then finally me at the tiniest portions. Sad, I know. Uh, but it's, if you will, when you went out to a public temple and you participated in public sacrifice on a weekly basis, it wasn't just religion, so to speak. What was going on was they were ordering the world. They were showing you who was who and who was not, who was supposed to be in power and who wasn't supposed to be in power by participating in these festivals. Very important that you understand that. In other words, this sacrificial practice was a way for the Roman Empire to order the world according to their demands or the way they wanted to. Remember, if you're an empire and you come along and you conquer people and you want to keep them as subjects, in other words, you want to make money off them and you want to embezzle their crops or whatnot, you have to continually remind them that they're supposed to be at the bottom and you as Rome, as Caesar, are supposed to be at top. So what do you do? You create a religion that helps, if you will, psycho, uh, to bend that in mentally at a mental level. They're supposed, this is how the world is supposed to be. And the religion, uh, if you will, helped meet that out. Now, this is Beard, North, and Price. I don't know which one wrote it, so I just threw all of them on there. And what is, remember, give me your full intellectual capacities here. What was at stake for emperors, governors, and members of civic elites was the whole web of social, political, and hierarchical assumptions that bound imperial society together. Sacrifices and other religious rituals were concerned with defining and establishing relationships of power, not to place oneself within the relationships between emperor, gods, elite, and people was effectively to place oneself outside the mainstream of the whole world and the shared Roman understanding of humanity's place within the world. Maintenance of social order was seen by the Romans to be dependent on maintenance of this agreed set of symbolic uh, structures, which assigned a role to people at all levels. Example. Okay, another example to try to den this in. If you want, you can read it with me. This is where I got creative momentarily last night. Let's say that an evil empire rose to power that wanted to conquer our territory so they could force us to pay heavy taxes and fuel their extravagant lifestyle by taking our crops from us. Let's suppose the king of this empire is named King Berdian. <laughs> He's the evil tyrannical king. <laughs> if you want evil tyrannical king, raise your hand. He's back there. Uh, you knew it was only, it wasn't going to be too long until I, I used this program for evil. I, it was just. So King Burdian, armed with his war machine, Bird Enterprises, now he wants us, the peasants, 
to stay in our place. He doesn't want us thinking we shouldn't be under his rule. So he creates a form of religion that when sacrificing to the gods, the same gods that appointed King Burdian to have right to rule over us, shows us our place and proverbial on the proverbial totem pole. So every time we come out to sacrifice and get the opportunity to eat meat, serves us last and with the least. A way to train us psychologically that this is the way things are and are supposed to be. If we decided not to participate, then we would in essence be challenging the world he was trying to create. Do you get it? Okay, so I really wanted you to get that point. Again, because this is normally not discussed when when Jesus asked sacrifice is discussed. uh, Because usually, again, it's just drawn into individualistic terms. Rarely is it actually considered within the social implications of accepting Jesus as your sacrifice. And of course, we don't have that culture, so we don't really experience that in our own day. And we've got to make sense of how that might make sense in our own day. And this is Stephen J. Patterson, so you can just, I may actually have it up here. Earliest Christians, by choosing not to sacrifice, refused to place themselves within the web of social, political, and hierarchical assumptions that bound imperial society together. They did this by omitting sacrifice from their own religious life. They refused thus to place themselves, but more significantly, they did this by refusing to participate in the whole public and private structure of sacrificial life. They would not attend sacrifices in the local temples. They would not sacrifice to the emperor and his gods. Most importantly, they would not eat meat that came from the sacrifice of animals to gods. So this is the reason you see sacrifice rising up as such a central issue in the early church. Again, for them, it may have been as simple as in in peasant society, meat wasn't a regular part of your diet. If you got a if you were able to get uh, acquire some actual protein or meat, it was usually from the temple. Most of us would probably be peasants, except for the evil tyrannical king, the, uh, King Birdian back there. He would have a big piece of lamb. And the, so when the Christians start to say, yes, Jesus is our sacrifice, and we want to be a part of Jesus' kingdom. In other words, and we know that the way Jesus ordered his kingdom, if you remember in Luke, Luke has a lot to say about this. The last are first, and the first are last. In other words, Jesus was bringing what we call an egalitarian kingdom, or everyone was equal kingdom. So once you say no to Caesar's way and Caesar's sacrifice, and the way Caesar wants to order the world, some in power, some at the bottom, and you say we're going to accept Jesus' kingdom rather where everyone is equal, and everyone gets equal share, and everyone gets equal participation, and he is our sacrifice. This carried heavy implications over and against the Roman emperor and governors. Small wonder in the second century, when, if you will, the Roman Empire starts coming down hard on the church, the one thing that they would ask you to do always was to sacrifice. Sacrifice to the emperor, and that's important because the moment you sacrifice to the emperor, you're agreeing to the way the emperor orders the world. So withdrawing from that, again, was a way of telling uh, Caesar is not Lord and Jesus is Lord. And so, again, Stephen J. Passion's earlier statement about making daddy just pay the bills. Yes, that's true. But when daddy pays the bills, it's going to carry some sociological implications in the ancient world, namely persecution from the Roman Empire. So now we'll go to Hebrews 10. Uh, If you can, turn with me to Hebrews 10. Now we can look at the cross as sacrifice 
uh, and now that we understand some of the social implications of what that would have carried in the ancient world. The statement year by year, and we're going we're to actually make sense of this passage. Again, the difficulty is when you land in a passage in the middle of a letter that's already built nine chapters on what its premise is and its, you know, its argument is, it's kind of hard to land in chapter 10 and then try to make sense of it, but we will do our best. Of course, if you uh, did last week's reading and this week's reading, you'd know what I'm talking about, but I won't, make, I won't do a raise of hands today. The statement year by year is in regard to one of Israel's most sacred days, the year of atonement or the day of atonement or in Hebrew, Yom Kippurim. This is the only day of the year that the high priest was permitted to enter the most holy place with the blood from a sacrifice. This marked Israel's atonement or at one mint is a good way of stating it or covering of their sins for the year, uh, accomplishing reconciliation between Israel and Yahweh. The Day of Atonement was outlined in Leviticus 16, which according to a New American Commentary follows this order. Um, let's see here. I threw some extra slides in here, I think, because I wanted to show you guys really briefly before I go into the order. Um, Israel, once Israel had been redeemed from Egypt, and they're brought through the Red Sea and then carried into the wilderness... Yahweh gives Moses instructions to build a sanctuary, or what we call the, the tabernacle, or the tabernacle of Moses. Now, you'll see, well, I don't know if, I think I may have a bigger picture in here, but I want to look at the smaller portion first. There was an outer court, and this is, if you will, the inner court. This is the holy place here. This is what we call the holy place, and this is called the most holy place. And, of course, this is where the Ark of the Covenant is, but I forgot the name of that last week including my sermon this week, the table of showbread, the uh, altar of incense, and then we have uh, the menorah, the lamp, what is traditionally called the lampstand here. And this is where the priests could, if you will, function in here daily. They changed the bread. They made sure the menorah was constantly running. Menorah is anachronistic. I'm sorry, it's the lampstand. Lampstand constantly ran, and then they would fill uh, incense, constantly putting that up. Once a year on Yom Kippur is the only time when the high priest, that looks like the high priest, would actually come up here, he'd have a basin, uh, a blood filled in a bowl, so to speak, and then he would come in, dash it seven times on the ground, the blood with a, I believe, a, some brush sort of thing, and then he would sprinkle it on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And if he will, he would accomplish atonement. In other words, Israel's sins would be covered for the year. Uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission if you will, when you remember Genesis, the price for Adam's rebellion, for wanting to be so low, is death. Uh, in other words, life is only found in relation to Yahweh. So if you're not in relation to Yahweh, death is your portion. But if Yahweh wants to redeem and liberate humanity from this separation, he has to bring reconciliation, and he has to pay the penalty for wanting to be autonomous or wanting to be so low. It was really what the sin of the garden is. So, Day of Atonement. This, I think I got another picture of, I thought I had another picture here. Oh, well. This is, if you will, the outline of the Day of Atonement. Number one, the high priest removed his outer garments, made for beauty and glory, and clothed himself in white linen as a symbol of repentance as he went about the duties of the day. So on this day, he normally, as I think we've studied before, is he's really, he's dressed up in these very fancy garbs. He takes that off and he only has a white linen sheet, so to speak, or mumu as some of us would call it today. Next, he offered a bull 
uh, as a sin offering for the priest and himself. That done, he entered the Holy of Holies with a censer of live coals. Remember that altar of incense in the holy place? And then he'd fill the entire thing with the incense, the smoke from the incense. So the entire thing would be filled. He sprinkled the bullock's blood on the mercy seat and on the floor before the Ark of the Covenant. And then he cast lots over two live goats brought by the people. He killed one of the goats as a sin offering for the nation. And then taking the blood inside the veil, sprinkling it as before, thus atoning even for the holy place. So he has two goats. He casts lots, sort of, if you will, the ancient way of rolling dice. And then whatever the, the lot cast it on, that would be the one, that would be the animal that he would sacrifice. That animal would pay the penalty for the sins of Israel for the year. He would then pray the sins on top of the goat and then slay it. Uh, and then he would take the blood in as he did before for himself. He confessed the sins of the nation over the live goat as he pre, I'm sorry, the other way around, placed his hands on its head. Finally, he sent the live goat calling the scapegoat into the wilderness. Symbolically, it carried away the sins of the people. Then the high priest clothed himself in his usual apparel and offered a burnt offering for himself and one for the people with the fat of the sin offering outside the camp. The flesh of the bull, calf, and goat was burned. So this is the great day of atonement, only once a year. And what Hebrews is actually saying, if we tune in, is that, if you will, this has been accomplished in a new and truest sense only in Jesus. And so he's going about to explain how the Day of Atonement, in fact, has been fulfilled. Now, Hebrews, in that chapter that we just read, there's the tabernacle. See? <laughs> oh, in what's. Uh, so here's the, ta- here's the tabernacle of Moses in the wilderness. And this, if you will, they have this for about 400 years until the King David. And then King David uh, commissions his son Solomon to build the Temple of Solomon, which then gets destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Romans, I mean by the Babylonians, and then they come back and rebuild in the 5th century under Persia, and then it gets refurnished under uh, Herod the Great. I know you're going to remember all that, right? Uh, this is the, here's the uh, tabernacle, and this is uh, the altar where the sacrifice was made, and that was, uh, there was a laver, kind of a basin filled with water there. And then by the time of the first century, by the time that Jesus is living, um, this is Herod's temple, or what we call the second temple. Uh, and the altar is here. And by this time, even though it, that's a much fancier uh, holy place, and holy, most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant was not in there. That had been lost under Babylon. Um, Jesus probably goes in this area when he does the whip of the cord event. And he, that's when he's driving out money changers and whatnot. What Hebrews is saying is that this Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement that goes on once a year at this temple, is not really the true Day of Atonement. That the true Day of Atonement has actually been fulfilled in Jesus, albeit in a different manner without the actual literal temple. And uh, we'll make sense of that momentarily. So what Hebrews 10 says is here's all the problems with the old Day of Atonement, so to speak. Number one, that the... uh, that the feast along with the tabernacle or the temple were shadows of things to come. 
That is, they pointed to a later fulfillment in God's Messiah in a new era. So all the things that Yahweh was doing in the Torah with the tabernacle and the building of the temple was really only meant to point to something greater than itself. What he calls in the Greek icon or an image of what's to come or a shadow. So the old temple standing in Jerusalem, if, he, if the temple's still standing when Hebrews is written, I doubt it. But that old temple was really just the shadow of Jesus himself. Two, the yearly sacrifice can never perfect the ones whom it was made. It deals with our sins, but not our sinfulness per se. In other words, it covers your sins and your transgressions, but never does it really change the true heart of the matter, and that's the person, the inner heart. And that's what Jesus' whole thing about outer versus inner is all about, is saying, you know, all these outer rituals that the Pharisees do for purity are not the real ways of purity. We need to purify the heart, and that's what his mission is about. A yearly sacrifice drummed up sins up continually so that one's conscience can never be adequately put to rest. So if you've got to make a sacrifice year after year after year, your conscience is kind of always bugging you because you always have to continually make these sacrifices. So you never actually get the clean slate in the truest sense. And then four, impossible for the blood of animals to be sufficient for valuable humans. And this is kind of makes sense. You can't offer something like a goat in place of a human. We know that one is more intrinsically valuable than the other. So what he's saying is, how can this sacrifice of a goat or a lamb, uh, particularly with the Day of Atonement, a, a goat, even be adequately sufficient for you as a human being who is of more worth and value and made in the image of God? It can't really make uh, stand in your place as sufficiently as possible. The Old Testament, and this is Thomas DeLay stating on this concept, the Old Testament law had impressive ceremonies supported by centuries of tradition. It preserved an awareness of divine holiness and revealed the need for atonement. Nevertheless, the repetition of offerings and sacrifices on the annual Day of Atonement never brought the worshipers into a permanent relationship with Yahweh. Why? Old Testament sacrifices reminded of sin but did not remove it. Hebrews emphasizes that the law was only a shadow of God's good blessings and not the reality. A shadow can never reveal its object, but it can provide an outline of reality. Whenever the reality comes, the shadow is irrelevant because the law was only a faint outline of the glories of the coming gospel. It was a temporary element in God's plan. So, the fulfillment, and this is all in Hebrews 10. We just, in Hebrews 10, if you go back and read it, he pointed out all the weaknesses of the Day of Atonement, all the weaknesses in the way that sacrifice was prescribed in the Torah. Now, in the same chapter, he's going to show, in the latter half of this, why Jesus is superior as the reality of the shadow of the Old Testament. So, first he says that Jesus comes and says, Behold, I have come to do your will. Thus, the shadow has reached its reality in Christ, making the old obsolete. Remember, the old was just meant to point forward to its reality. And he quotes a psalm there. Um, whether or not Jesus actually said this is irrelevant, because we don't have a recording, but he's making a point. Jesus, that psalm pointed to the day when Jesus would come and fulfill the shadow. Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all. Thus, our conscience can finally be put to rest there are no more sacrifices needed. Unlike having to make the yearly sacrifice with the Day of Atonement, the one sacrificial event of Jesus is supreme for all time. So conscience can finally be put at ease. There's no reason to drum up the past. He, unlike the priest who stand daily, 
sat down at the right hand of God after his sacrifice. We know that in the tabernacle and the temple, they had to stand and walk around and move around daily. There was no sitting because they constantly had to deal with sins uh, on a regular basis. However, when Jesus makes his sacrifice, uh, quoting Psalm 110 and what, if you will, Acts alludes to, is that Jesus then sits down, no longer having to, if you will, do what the daily ministry of the Old Testament does. And so he sits down because it's finished. It can be, it's no longer needing to be done. And he is human and deity um, as according to Hebrews 1 and 2, when you read that, it equivocates Jesus with the one creator God. Again, an unprecedented statement indeed that Jesus is somehow identifiable with the one creator God. Of course, this not only means that he can, he's a sufficient stand-in, but if he is in one sense uh, uh, equivalent to the one creator God, then that even is far supreme of a sacrifice for all of humanity. In other words, it went from a uh, worthless goat to the one creator God, and the value is worth thee, so to speak. Okay, so we'll, we'll sum up. I know you guys are all yawning at me because it's too much information to bear. Okay, so in conclusion... What was the problem that the Hebrews letter is addressing? We can reconstruct using the letter is that persecution had arisen when these people decided to follow Christ. Most likely under pressure from either the temple or Roman authorities for withdrawing the sacrifices that were part of daily Greco-Roman life. This is the reason sacrifice becomes such a central issue in the letter of Hebrews, and they want them to not go back to making sacrifices at the temple. So most likely, when you read further on in, I believe, Hebrews 12 or 13, he's talking about the days when they stood in solidarity with those who were being persecuted, and now they're withdrawing, and they're going to go back and start making sacrifices again, which is the reason why uh, uh, there's an urgency in the Hebrews letter to persist in the faith, to not go back to the old ways, so to speak. They were refusing to be placed rather than embracing uh, a new world presently being realized in Christ. It appears that the social pressure to return to the world created by Caesar or the temple with their hierarchies was too much. And so they began avoiding the Christian gatherings for regular attendance at the temples. Remember in Hebrews 10, uh, not avoiding the assemblies together as in the manner of some. The point they're not coming to the weekly church gatherings is because the sacrifice goes on. In other words, they're nullifying other sacrifices. And we already said earlier what the implications for withdrawing from public sacrifice was. And so they stopped showing up to the Christian sacrifice and participation of that sacrifice to go to the public, if you will, forums and then fall in place just like the Roman authorities wanted them to. Thus the author of Hebrews writes to remind them of the superiority of the new heavenly temple with its compassionate high priest, the one who offered a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. All the benefits of the new and final temple were experienced weekly at the assembling together of the Christ followers, who all got to partake of the altar, that is, weekly communion, of course, without the hierarchy. And here's where Christianity in the first century, at a social level, was revolutionary. They had no hierarchy. And it's why we always need to guard from hierarchy, because in the, uh, 
and that's the one thing, if you will, that's driving Paul insane in the letter of Corinthians. But the fact that some were rich were being treated better than the ones who were poor. But the, Jesus had taught that everyone was equal and that everyone was to receive the same amount. The last was first, the first was last. So, again, it's a way of, if you will, sticking your nose up at the way the, the wider world wants to order uh, according to power and uh, you know, worth and all that. That is weekly communion, of course, without the hierarchy. So the Lord grant us today eyes to see that the small body is not what it looks like at first glance, but rather to see it for what it really is, the weekly fulfillment of the great day of atonement, where a great high priest seated at God's right hand above the heavens compassionately intercedes on our behalf because he has offered himself as a once and for all sacrifice for sins. All of Hebrews is aiming at chapter, well, most of Hebrews is aiming at chapter 10. Once it talks about the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, the sufficiency of the heavenly tabernacle, and all this, so to speak, he's saying this goes on every time you guys meet on a weekly basis. He's, and if you want, it's an unveiling at this level. He's showing that the Day of Atonement happens here. And the early church, and even, in a sense, the way we do it, uh, can we avoid zipping the things and finishing me up before I get done, please? Uh, the weekly, the weekly, you know, su- sacrifice and the the uh, offering here, and we see all the altar, everything that the early temples had. The actual early church started to do. They were sharing the communion amongst themselves. The sacrifice was Christ's sacrifice. However, all were a priesthood. It was, if you will, uh, the cool thing about the early church is they. Uh, democratized the priesthood. They were all priests to the Most High God. So in one sense, uh, we all have access as a high priest. It's not just this hierarchical figure standing at the helm of the temple who gets it then distributed to the powerful and then kind of works its way down. Rather, we're all high priests and we all get to participate, as you see even the children get to participate at the table. And this is, a, if you will, a, a temple that is supposed to subvert how the order, the rest of the world wants to order us along the line. So it's very important we maintain that sense of egalitarianism amongst ourselves and make, making sure we're all participating in the communion and that we're all uh, given equal worth. This is key why uh, today, uh, whenever they're sick or people who can't make it because of they're sick or absent or whatnot, that we actually go bring them the, you know, the communion because what we're saying is you're, you're weak, you're sickly, and you can't make it to the temple, but you're equal member of it. So we're here, we're here to share with you and recognize you as such.